0: Welcome to another episode of Pastimes, Talking and Teaching History. My name is Andreas Hopperger. I'm your co-host for this episode, uh, which will be about digital citizenship. I'm joined by my excellent colleague, Mikey De Vries.
1: Hi, Andreas. Hi, Maike. Here I am again.
0: Yeah, great to have you back yet again. Yet again. Yet yes. again. Um, for any new listeners, um, Maike has been with us for many, since, many... Since post-tons. episode one. Since episode and number actually, one.
1: And this episode is a bit related to the first episode. The first episode was with Sam Weinberg, which was about um, online um, civic reasoning skills. Mm-hmm. And actually, today, with uh, Professor Joseph Kahn, we're gonna actually elaborate on that. So thinking about what other skills should we have in a digital democratic society, not only being able to evaluate sources, but also, you know, to create them, uh, to distribute them and to act upon them. So therefore I thought, let me introduce myself to this podcast yeah
0: no great to have you back and this is uh we, we also want you on this on on this particular episode of course because it's also well you've you've followed uh, professor khan's work quite closely in your own um studies and work because you well you are now working on your phd at uh, university college london right
1: still i have to say still but uh, yeah. an ongoing journey
0: this topic is something we've been working on at Eurocleo for, for a while now. Um, we actually have a project also watching videos like Anistorin, You're on it, Mike. I
1: am also working on that, yeah, yeah. so it's very interesting, good yeah.
0: stuff. Yeah, uh, please uh, have a look at our website and, uh, and see what's going on with that project. It's recently started, so it, there will be more. Well, let's, let's get talking to Professor Kahn. All right. So we are joined today by Professor Joseph Kahn. Welcome, Joe, if I can call you that. Sure. Uh, So, uh, Professor Kahn is a professor of education policy and politics um, and co-director of the Civic Engagement Research Group at the University of California, Riverside. Uh, his uh research focus is on the influence of school practices and digital media on youth civic and political development and he's published uh, numerous articles on on these issues so uh warm welcome oh, to you yeah. uh joe uh we'll go straight to a few questions for you um i'll I'll kick off with with one already um if you could just tell us a little bit about how you got interested uh in this topic of researching digital citizenship very specifically.
2: Sure. Well, first, thank you for having me on your podcast. Um, and uh, I should say right off the bat that while I study digital citizenship, um, I, I think my my children find that somewhat amusing because I'm am not the most technically competent person, to say the least. So i I got into this area Um, maybe sort of early in terms of educators, around uh, 2003, 2004, um, when it was clear that the internet was playing a bigger and bigger role in the ways in which young people got engaged in civic and political life. And I um, have long studied uh, the young people's engagement in civic and political life. And so, given this big change, that that seemed to be a good direction to go in to try to learn more about it. Um, but I should say I also had a conversation with a, a mentor of mine when I was talking with him about my interest in civics, and he said to me, "You know," and he he's sort of very involved in broader education policy, and he said, "You know, the problem with civics, Joe, is." that i hear that word and i think most people hear that word and they just want to fall asleep <laughs> and so i think what he was saying and he said you know if you looked at this digital angle there might be a level of interest that you're not necessarily tapping with young people when you talk more about the structure and function of government or even how to be politically active that that there's something really exciting Mm. about digital media, because it connects with young people, not just around their civic and political lives, which some kids care a ton about, but some kids don't. But it also connects with their social lives, which, you know, almost all kids care a ton about. And so that was an added uh, sort of insight that I took away from that conversation, which led me to sort of really jump into this area.
1: And now fast forward in 2023, as we are right now, we're spending a lot of time online, actually. Um, So digital citizenship has become a very important topic for many people to think about or to read about or to engage with. there are some opportunities and some challenges as well that comes with digital citizenship. You wrote about this yourself as well, but what would you say is the biggest challenge and what is the, also the biggest opportunity of the area in which we are living right now?
2: Well, I I love your question because I think um, sometimes people, uh, especially early on, but even still today are, Things like, you know, is digital media good or bad? Or is it good or bad for democracy? Or is it good or bad for learning? And really that's sort of like saying, you know, is electricity good or bad for learning? It's it's not that it's um, good or bad, it's technology. And so it's used. It will be used in ways that are exciting and powerful and supportive of young people and it can be used in ways that are really problematic. And so I I appreciate your framing of the question. I'd say the the thing to think about with technologies is what do those technologies make possible that is different than when we didn't have them? And one of the shifts that came about because of, of these new media is a diminished control over communication by elites and experts, um, and by institutional gatekeepers. And so, because it is so easy for all of us to post pretty much anything, and it is so easy for us to find the things that other people are saying, uh, we have both a ton of opportunities and a ton of challenges, but that's one of the big shifts that these technologies enable. Um, You know, it used to be that if a a uh, student, you know, is 15 years old and wanted to share some ideas, they really had very few opportunities beyond sharing those ideas with their immediate friends and family. And now they have lots of opportunities. There's good or bad with that, right? It means there's a lot of problematic things that get shared, mm-hmm. and there's a lot of great things that get shared. And so I would say one of the big opportunities is it opens up space for young people to have voice and to join in powerful ways uh, to try to push for changes that they want to see civically and politically. Um, It gives tons of space for creativity, tons of space for audience, Um, all these things that are so much more available, right, than they used to be if you go back to the the pre-digital age. And at the same time, it means people are confronted with a lot of things That uh, we probably wish would, you know, there are times I wish there were a little more gatekeeping, Mm. right? Because there's some really horrible things that get shared, both in terms of being harassing, in terms of being uh, violent, in terms of being vile. And uh, there's just no way uh, in our current context to be insulated from that. So we have to learn how to deal with it uh, as well as we can.
0: Uh, if I can just pick up on on what you just said now, because I, I don't want this to be yet another uh, uh, sort of talk about how horrible fake news and all of that is. Like, we we also want to hear these like more positive sides of things. But of uh, th- when you mentioned the gatekeepers and so on, what 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 for you is actually the role of two? Um, I would say two crucial. Um, they they aren't gatekeepers, but um, institutions here. Uh, first of all the the technological companies how do you see sure. what is their responsibility in this in this uh world that we are living in and for us as a as a as a podcast for educators uh, what's what's education's role
2: you know i so i appreciate that and i think i think you're right to, in many important ways what's happening is the gatekeeping has moved to different institutions so uh you know, as many people have discussed, Twitter or Instagram or TikTok, any of those groups still influence what we see. But it's nowhere near as complete an influence as it was when you needed to get on the nightly news. Hmm. So in the States, there were three major networks. If you got on one of those, you reached tens of millions of people. And if you didn't, you know, you had far smaller audiences. If you uh, if you couldn't get in the newspaper, it w- which you know, there's not space for everybody to be in the newspaper, it was really hard to reach people. Even at their most uh, you know putting their thumb on the scale as it were, their most effort to influence things, the institutions that guide uh, these digital platforms don't don't prevent in most cases people from getting their their voice out there. but they play a huge role in deciding whether to amplify certain voices. So, uh, you know, I think they have a responsibility around that. I tend to be, I wouldn't say a free speech absolutist, but I uh, am cautious about the idea that you can limit free speech and certainly would be cautious about the idea that the multinational corporations that own these platforms, or in the case of some, you know, China, should decide what gets said and what doesn't. That that strikes me as, as creating many more problems than it solves. But, but that's different than saying those technologies have an obligation to amplify everything. And currently, a lot of their strategies amplify whatever makes them money, which is to say whatever leads more people to watch it or see it or engage with it and therefore sells more advertising. And I'm not excited about a world in which horrible contact content gets amplified to sell commercials. So I think it does make sense to think about, and it's not easy, but to think about ways to begin uh, putting pressure on these technology companies to, uh, Uh, influence the ways in which they make decisions about amplification to at least take some of the most destructive stuff to downplay the degree to which it circulates. Um, And clearly if people want to find it, they'll still be able to find it. And to some extent we'll still spread it, but that's different than saying uh, let's spread it because we'll sell more ads with respect to education. Uh, you know, obviously, this is a passion that the three of us share. I think there's a huge responsibility. Um, Again, ultimately, young people will make their own decisions about what they look at, about what they create and what they circulate. But there's no doubt. uh, And in fact, our research and the research of others have indicated that the things educators do not only can help them, for example, negotiate and judge the credibility of information, but can also lead them to take advantage of opportunities to share their own perspectives and to create and to remix and to circulate and get their voice out there. And so I think there's a very empowering role that educators can play while still leaving young people to have the autonomy that they're going to have, whether we want it or not, to participate in the world the way they see fit.
1: So, and that the circulation and remixing of uh, information that young people are distributing, that that is also an element of the participatory politics that you um, refer to within digital citizenship. Is is that right? Or is there more to it?
2: No, I think, so one of the shifts I think we've seen, uh, in part because of, the digital age, but not only because of the digital age, is an increase in the relative opportunities for direct participation in civic and political life. Um, We often think uh, of a distinction between what we might call institutional politics, showing up when there are elections, going to uh, town hall meetings, voicing your opinion with elected officials or putting pressure on corporations. Those are all institutions, and when you engage in that, you could think of it as institutional politics. But it's also true that uh, people have always participated more directly with one another. Um, We might think of it, and often it has a high, uh, heavy cultural element to it the digital age has dramatically expanded young people's opportunities for institutional politics as well as for participatory politics. But I'd say it's done even more for the participatory side. So the ability of young people, as we were saying, to get their voice out and their ideas out to a large number of people. That feels to me, especially if we're thinking about, uh, you know, say kids from 12 years old to 18 years old, That's a period of time when young people are just beginning to think about their ideas in relation to the broader society, right? I mean, when some kids do it at an even younger age, but often, you know, with with very young kids, they're really thinking about, you know, their friends, their family in a a smaller way. But as kids move into adolescence, they're beginning to think about, you know, what's my, how do I feel about the world? What what are my opinions? What do I want to say? Well, we can think of that as as a for you know, many of those opportunities align with what we call participatory politics, ways to get your voice out there. And I think the things that you raised, like remixing, circulating, all fit in that pattern.
0: Um, I, I want to again have a question more sort of directly on, on on education and how education can play a role. Um so given that our, our podcast is really for teachers, um uh, yeah, sort of wondering if you have some concrete strategies that teachers can can use in their classroom practice, um, or if you can point to if there's one single thing uh, a teacher, a civics or a history teacher, can do in their in their teaching practice, practice to help the kids become good, responsible digital citizens, if you like. What what would that be?
2: Sure, let me let me say. Uh... Two things that are a little bit broader about what we found through research, and then um, I'll try to identify one or two very practical directions. So the first, and and all of it relates, actually, I'd say to to the the big, my big answer to your question, which is I think what uh, schools can provide, teachers can provide, is opportunities for young people to reflect and to practice, or to practice their forms of engagement and to reflect on how it's going. Um, Again and again, in studies uh, of the impact of educational efforts related to the digital realm, we find that there isn't, you know, one technique that solves everything. Rather, what young people need are opportunities to experience uh, doing certain kinds of things and then chances to reflect with one another, with their peers and with their teacher about how it went. Because you want to help people make sense of their experience. The experience isn't necessarily self-educative. They could take um, better or less good lessons away from what they experienced. The research, really backs this up. So when you give young people opportunities, you know, assignments like go online and find different perspectives on a social issue you care about. Uh, When you give assignments like that, you find that even a year later, kids are more likely in their discretionary time to report having looked up differing points of view on social issues. When you give assignments like you know, create a post or a blog that shares your perspective on a societal issue. And the kids share blogs with one another, give one another feedback on what's good or less good about the blog, or maybe it's a meme or maybe it's, you know, whatever, an infographic. Kids become more likely in their discretionary time to do those kinds of activities. So while some kids will do this, whether schools give them those opportunities or not, many kids won't. So giving kids opportunities to practice and then to reflect on those experiences is super important. Um, Let me try to be a little more specific now about what that can look like. Um, Often with the teachers we've worked with, uh, one, because the teachers are often sometimes a little insecure about their own digital skills, And like all of us, we're learning. And often the kids are two steps ahead. But also because young people think about this a lot, some of the most effective practices are with teachers asking the students, suppose you wanted to do this, how would you go about it? And the students then uh, share what they do. Or what have you done in the past when you've wanted to do this, right? So you're bringing young people in where they are and then helping them reflect on that. And that could be whether it's credibility assessment or whether it's uh, creating new content like through a blog to be shared. Um, One of the things that uh, my colleague, Erica Hodgen uh, really alerted me to was how much these teachers who were doing it well help students engage in what we might think of as sort of metacognitive reflection. So they, they were asking the students, what went on in your head when you saw this post? When you were thinking about the options, what were you thinking? Or when you saw this thing that uh, maybe challenged something you already believed, how did that make you feel? And so trying to help young people not just reflect on how could I be successful with my blog, though that's important, but also what was going on inside your head when you read this piece?
1: Those are some, some good uh, insights, uh, especially the reflective questions I think are very important. Um, I think m- my question is a little bit like a few steps back. <laughs> Let's call it like that, yeah. Because for example, if you ask students to um, create a blog or to find information about the political issue from both sides, um, how to do that well? Because there is also a lot of information out there that you maybe not necessarily want students to interact with or um you had, you want them to be critical of it at uh, to say the least so uh how what kind of questions should one ask or, or what should be what should we be aware of when um conducting such kind of activities
2: yeah that's helpful let me answer in two ways um, one kind of question is about what are you trying to achieve? And and having students be more, in a sense, strategic and explicit about why they think what they're doing would be helpful or not. And that kind of question, and then having whether it's pushback or affirmation from their classmates and from the teacher may help people reflect more. Like what what are you really trying to do? Because a lot of times, for example, we know, and this is true of adults as well as as young people, if you say, well, why did you repost that? Or why did you circulate that? And they're like, well, I thought it was funny. What were you actually trying to achieve? That's one key question. A second key question is what do you think your responsibilities are because again we live in a society where none of us are are always encouraged to think about are we really behaving you know are we putting forward our best self in relation to this what are our responsibilities and yet young people especially adolescents are at a stage where those kinds of moral judgments are things they think about a lot. So if you can tap into, you know, they're making moral critiques all the time of their parents, of the world, all of that. If you can tap into that energy, I think you can help them also reflect on their own behavior in powerful ways. Related to those kinds of judgments, and this is maybe the third and last thing I'd say, is... How do you think that affects others? Because I think this is again, true for all of us. We sometimes imagine that what we do will have the impact that it would have on us. And part of being a engaged in the world of civic and political life and just being a, a person engaged in the world is also being conscious that not everybody experiences things the same way. So, a question like, what are different ways people might experience this post? And, um, you know, when you think of, for example, uh, in the US, we have a lot of problems with bullying. And sometimes I think uh, young people and, again, their parents. Don't look at their action as thinking about how did that other person feel, but more, what what did they mean? What did they intend or what were they trying to do? And why did they think it was worth doing? And helping people think about how other people would experience it is crucial. Not just about something like bullying or harassment, which is vital that we do something about, but also about how to have effective political voice right? If your goal is to convince someone who already disagrees with you to think a little more seriously about your own perspective, that's a really challenging thing. And simply restating your own perspective or doing it in a way that insults the person you're trying to convince is not necessarily the most effective strategy. So I think reflecting on how would other people experience this and and in what different ways, is what other people experience, uh, can be a very powerful question.
1: The three questions that you asked are really like sort of the core questions about being a good citizen uh, as well, of course, thinking about others and your, the implications to others.
0: Uh, well, I think we're, perhaps we, we should try to wrap up uh, soon. So maybe a last question uh, for you, uh, Joe. Um, you, you mentioned in the beginning that uh, you, your kids don't see you as the most, uh, the, well, digital tech, tech savvy uh, person, actually. Um, and of course, many teachers are also kind of struggling with the fact that while well, there are lots of new technologies, apps, ways of communicating that are popping up all the time and uh it can be a bit overwhelming it can be a bit challenging for many uh teachers to deal with that not only older ones actually uh (laughs) and so So do you have any do you have any tips on on how to go about dealing with that in today's society
2: yeah I guess I'd say two things and and this is true not just for the digital stuff which I think many of us as educators can be you know hesitant or intimidated by, but also for talking about civic and political engagement, right? If you haven't talked with kids about highly controversial issues in the classroom a lot, it can be intimidating. What we tend to suggest is you know like many things, take it one step at a time. Don't plan a month-long unit where you're going to go all in on this if you've never done something like this before. Start with something that feels more manageable. Maybe it's a a two-day assignment. And think about what it is that that you want to try to accomplish and maybe pick a technological element of it that you do feel more comfortable with, more confident in. And see how that goes. And then you can think about how to expand. Always, it's good for all of us to push ourselves a little bit beyond our comfort zone but, but I think being realistic, uh, doing something is much better than doing nothing. And if I sometimes worry that, you know, uh, people get exposed to, here's a great three-week curriculum, well, that may be something to do, but it may not be the first thing to do if you haven't done something like this before. Um, the second thing that I'd say is something we haven't talked a lot about, and maybe this is a, a sort of concluding point that's, that's also worth saying. As I mentioned earlier, digital technology is just a technology. A lot of what educators have to offer is not about how to use technology. Frankly, kids are going to figure that out on their own. It's more how to know about the issues that people are engaging with that technology. And some of it, for example, you know one of the things that we talk about with misinformation, that will take, you know, yes, you can learn how to fact check things. But a lot of what it means to be politically engaged is not just telling which things are factually accurate or not. It's knowing enough about the issue so you can understand, knowing enough about the political process so that you can understand the ways in which people are using facts to make arguments. Because it's quite possible to make arguments that are not factually false but are still deeply problematic. And again, educators are in a great position to help young people develop all the knowledge around civic and political life and the issues that are important to them that will enable them to use technologies productively.
1: That's a reassuring thought, I think, for a lot of uh, educators uh, here in Europe as well absolutely yeah we didn't really discuss also the difference of course of that we are in in Europe and um you're located in in the United States but I think that we can say we're dealing here with the same polarization that is also going on in the United States so for educators to bring any kind of political uh topic into the classroom always comes with some kind of wariness and um sensitivity maybe that's right that's
2: right and 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 schools are a difficult place to do it, but they may be one of the best places we have to do it, right? Because if we are not discussing those issues in classrooms, then maybe the only stuff kids are seeing is what shows up in their social media feeds, which uh, may be less good.
1: Yeah, Yeah. Um, um, obligation that educators have to do.
0: Joe, thank you so much for for having joined us all the way from California and from how you shared uh, some of your well, your part of your research, but also your thoughts and sort of yeah. practical ideas that you you have. To... I,
1: I liked it, it was a, a positive uh, twist to digital uh, citizenship. We we talked about how we can also utilize it to make our young people yeah. politically active. I think that's a very important element of this conversation that definitely we need to bring. Yeah, so well, thank I, you so much. I
2: really appreciated it. So thank you. Thank, Thank you, you
1: so much. I wishing you a good day.